This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and prefund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerdhost.com. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your clients' web applications? Nerdhost.com is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new sign-up referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd and enter freelancer into the contact form as a discount. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 192 of The Freelancer Show. On our panel this week, we have Philip Morgan... Hello, hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner, and this week our special guest is Ryan Wagner. Hey, glad to be here. Ryan, uh, tell us about yourself. So I am a mobile development consultant, and um, I've been a solo freelancer slash consultant for eight years probably, and I was a product manager prior to that uh, in San Francisco, and I did web development for a few years and eventually switched over to mobile, and... I kind of split my time these days between doing active consulting and trying to help other consultants build stronger businesses. And when you say helping other consultants, like do you do coaching or run seminars or something? I mean, I've always kind of been like a natural teacher. Like I love teaching people and I love helping people. I mean, some of it is selfish because I think the best way to learn something is to to teach it. And I really have thought a lot of things through a little bit more deeply and more carefully because... Whenever you have to explain a concept to somebody, it really forces you to kind of organize it in your own mind. So some of it is just selfish, but I've just always been somebody who tries to be helpful to people around me and people who are maybe a little bit behind me and on you know whatever particular road I'm on. So I've always helped a lot of freelancers that I just knew individually with just some of the things I've learned over the years. I mean, I've been doing this for a little while and I've experienced a little bit of success at it. And just over the last year, I've started kind of trying to formalize that a little bit. So I launched a site called letsmakeapps.io that does 
lead generation for freelancers. And so we basically do like lead curation. I have somebody who every day like goes through several hundred sites and different sources and tries to find like the best freelance job posts that people have posted for uh, developers and designers. Uh, and then we send that out in a daily email. And then as part of that, I have basically just started to expanding into writing and, you know, appearing on some podcasts and stuff about building a strong business as a freelancer. So I am curious how you kind of, I, th- I think a lot of freelancers kind of have like a hump that they have to get over, right? Did you have that hump at all? I mean, I definitely did have that hump. So my wife and I both quit jobs within like a week of each other to freelance. She is a freelance writer and social media manager. And in retrospect, that was not smart. <laughs> we were in San Francisco at the time. And the next 18 months, I would say at least, this was 2007. And the, the next 18 months were just brutal. I mean, some of it honestly was just necessitated by living in a high cost of living area. Like I had to really be disciplined about making like a good income. It wasn't enough to kind of be able to scrape by like I would have been able to do in Nashville where I live now, um, mm-hmm. for example. So some of it was was necessity. But you know, for me personally, I think the big things were I am really big on setting goals and I really set aggressive goals and tracked my numbers on a month by month basis. And I think another, for me, another big part of it, which I think this is probably true for a lot of freelancers who are not honest with themselves, is that I had terrible, terrible productivity habits. I was not a productive freelancer for the first couple of years that I started. And Whenever you go from like working a job to being a freelancer, the reason I think a lot of freelancers struggle is that there's nobody to kind of, you know, like your clients will bug you, but you definitely have to be a lot more self-managed. And it took me a little while to kind of figure some of those things out. And I still, I'm still figuring out some of those things, but I think those were some of the, the things that contributed. Interesting. So if someone's starting off or someone's interested in starting off, aside from quitting the job at the same time as their spouse, what would you suggest that they do to sort of maybe even before they do that, if they're thinking of freelancing, what sort of preparation should they do or groundwork should they do? So I, um, I mean, my situation was that I started freelancing moonlighting basically in the evenings and weekends. And I think that is a much, much safer proposition for most people. You know, it depends on your situation. If you have a spouse who is working and you can live off of one income or if you have, you know, some savings and so forth. But I think I would probably not encourage anybody to jump into freelancing until they've given it um, at least a little bit of a shot, just because I think that freelancing, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it, and I don't think I would ever go back to having a job, but I don't think it's for everybody. And there's, I think, some just some mindset things uh, with freelancing that are just different from having a job, um, not necessarily better or worse, but just different. So I don't know that it's necessary for everyone, and I would encourage anybody to to at least give it a shot. So that would be my first answer. Just dip your toe in, do some moonlighting, and that will hopefully give you an idea of like what it's like. Obviously you still you don't have the kind of the income insecurity that is part of being a freelancer um, to some extent. Not that there's a lot of job security for most people these days, but it's a little bit more apparent maybe as a freelancer. Yeah. Right. I mean uh, I definitely I I've, I've got and Many of the other people I know who have been freelancing for a while and have set up systems and lead generation and so forth have worked several months in advance, sometimes even many months in advance. And I, remember I mentioned this on my mastermind, and one of the people on my mastermind said, oh, my God, like I work for the government, and I think you have more job security than I do. Um, 
And I'm granted he's a consultant to the government, but you can get yourself to that place, but it, it takes some time and it takes, uh, I would also say some, some luck as well as hard work. Yes, for sure. And I think the difference for me um, with job security, because I definitely, I mean, I have a, I have a pretty stable roster of clients now in the sense that like I have a mix of project clients who bring me like recurring project work and I have a few clients who are on just recurring monthly agreements and so forth. So I have a lot of job security kind of like my natural pipeline, so to speak, is is really healthy. At the same time, I do definitely wake up cognizant every day as a freelancer that the default is that I'm not going to get work. Like this is going to end at some point. Maybe it's a few months from now. Maybe it's a year from now. But I am going to go have to find the next thing. However I do that, and obviously there's a ton of different methods to do that. But when you have a job, the default is that you're going to continue having that job. And if you get laid off, obviously that's like a departure from the default. But as a freelancer, you know, a departure from the default is, is, is a little bit different. Yeah, every time I get a new client and I come back home and I tell my wife, oh my God, this client is the best. This is going to be the greatest relationship ever. She says, no. <laughs> and, and she's not saying our relationship, right? She, she's saying, she says the nature of your work is that it will end at some point and that's right. just the way it is. And, you know, milk it for all you can while it's happening, but yeah. you have to expect it to end. Yeah, I mean... I've been doing this for eight years. I don't know about you guys. I've, I've had probably had well over a hundred clients at this point. Some of those pretty small engagements, but I don't think I have a single client that I had, you know, that I got in the first couple of years. My oldest client at this point is probably two or three years. And some of that is that I'm pretty aggressive about raising my prices and kind of changing the thing that I focus on, like that I do best. And so in most of those cases, it's just that it's just kind of like no longer a good fit from my end, but yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of, there's always going to be turnover. And so you mentioned raising your prices. So how, how do you price things and how do you raise your prices and how would you suggest other people do that? So first of all, like I never charge hourly and I haven't for years, um, which is pretty, I would say that in terms of people who spend time thinking and writing about freelance, like that seems to be pretty prevalent. And the nature of my work, my focus is startups. So I build mobile MVP applications for funded startups. And so typically like they are trying to build out the first version of their app. They've raised a round of angel funding or maybe they're self-funded. Um, but we're going to build out the first version. Usually they are fundraising the next round. They're going to need an internal team at some point. And so I'll kind of help them get to that point and then help them make the transition to having an internal team once it makes sense for them. So that's kind of the typical engagement for me. Value-based pricing is pretty hard in that kind of like value-based pricing in terms of like, well, like this is going to be this much added to your bottom line. And so by comparison, like paying some fraction of that is a good deal. It doesn't work terribly well just because they're one of the frustrating things about startups is that it's hard to get kind of good financial metrics because it's all speculative. So I don't necessarily do value-based pricing, but I always do either flat rate pricing or if it's a like an open-ended engagement, I may do weekly pricing. That's about the smallest time increment that I do. And even the weekly pricing is not a certain number of hours per day or, or anything like that. It's basically that like you're going to be my primary focus on a week-by-week -week basis. Um, and my assumption is that if if the progress that we're making together is not sufficient, then you'll find another developer. And I have yet to have that happen, so it seems like it's it's working. But that's a very high level of how I do pricing. 
So you're basically doing flat rate weekly billing until until they, I mean, more or less, until do, the, they, they sort of wanted to finish or you wanted to finish. Sorry. So I'm doing flat rate billing in 90% of cases. In in the last 10%, I do weekly billing. So it's mm-hmm. either one or the other. Okay. So okay. flat rate meaning I'm going to build out a project, an MVP, and it's going to be, you know, whatever it is for this version. And then if often there'll be a kind of a monthly support retainer attached to that. And, you know, if they want to do other major improvements, then we'll do future phases that get scoped out separately. Mm-hmm. You said a couple of things there, Ryan, that were pretty interesting. When I'm working with a lot of people on their positioning, lots of folks are like, I, I want to work with startups. And I, I think that's because they're, you know, they're kind of, it's, it's appealing, right? That sort of building something new, something unique, something interesting. Uh, I'm curious what you've learned working with startups about working with startups. Like what would you yeah. advise other people about that, them as a type of client? Well, I love working with startups, first of all, on the whole, because they're always doing new, interesting things. And they tend to be like, just by nature of the, you know, the type of person who wants to to build a startup, they tend to be pretty open-minded and forward-thinking. And I, I have like a very kind of like soft and murky process that is way more art than science for kind of how I feel out who would be a good fit as a client. And we can talk about that. But Mm -hmm. By and large, startups, um, you know, they tend to be forward thinking and so forth. At the same time, I don't know that I will stick with startups as kind of my focus in the long run for a bunch of reasons. But essentially, they come down to startups on the whole don't have a lot of money, which is why I focus on funded startups. But the biggest issue is that no matter what you do, no matter how good you are in my particular role, they're probably going to fail. And Mm. so I have tremendous portfolio rot and I have a lot of my lifetime value for a startup as a customer, I think is a lot lower than it would be if it was another type of business, Mm -hmm. just because, you know, 90% of them are going to go under in the next 18 months. And so I'm not going to have the chance to kind of work with that particular entity. Often I get a lot of like referral stuff from the people at the startup who go on to other things. So I don't know. So maybe in that sense, it is valuable because they're kind of seeding my reputation all over the startup landscape. But Right. Um, yeah, I'd say my portfolio rot is brutal. I mean, I've, I've launched dozens and dozens of apps in the app store and you know, currently there's probably less than 10 of them that are currently in the app store, which is frustrating. It means that I have to work really hard to capture the work that I do in some format that I can show it to somebody you know, two years later whenever that app and that company doesn't exist anymore. So you might knock it out of the park and still you know, it goes nowhere ultimately. Yeah, I mean, there's an aspect of there's a huge aspect of luck with startups. Yeah. Um, and then even if like my technical solution is amazing and I and I have a background as a product manager, so I often, I mean, I serve as much as a consultant for startups um, in the ideal scenarios I do helping them with development in that I'm helping them figure out what to build and more importantly, what not to build. And we can do all that pretty much perfectly, but, you know, they're out there doing business development and that just doesn't doesn't work or whatever. They can't raise the next round. and So I really enjoy it and we'll see where my positioning goes from here. Maybe it'll be something that it's a little bit more um, vertical focused so that I can still work with startups within that vertical um, as opposed to being kind of business phase focused like it is now. Yeah. You you mentioned low LTV and low lifetime value. And one of the things that you always hear is that the, you know, making a subsequent sale to someone is much cheaper than that first sale. Is that, is that why that's a problem for you? 
Oh yeah. So this is something that like I've had to learn over and over and I still forget it like almost literally every time I talk to a a new client. But Alan Weiss, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with, wrote this book called Million Dollar Consulting that has been like tremendously valued to valuable to me to think about what I do in a little bit different way. And anyway, one of the things that he talks about in the book is think of the fourth sale first. So whenever you talk to a new client, don't be thinking about this and you know this immediate transaction be thinking about like the value of this relationship in the long run and i i mean i still find that difficult i still find it difficult to to not get hung up on like what this immediate engagement looks like and obviously like you want it to meet your criteria but at the same time i think for me you know if i look back at like my most uh, lucrative clients my most lucrative relationships they've definitely been long-term relationships. And I would say a good half of them have been things that weren't that impressive from day one. Mm. Um, they just grew into something impressive over time. And, you know, if these entities are going out of business in six months, it's hard for that to happen. So, yeah. Can you give an example? I mean, without any names or details, but like what would be sort of an unimpressive engagement that later turned into a really nice relationship over time? Sure. So, I mean, very typically, I'll do a build out of an, a bare bones MVP app, and I'm constantly raising my minimums. So, this might not be an option for <laughs> some of you listening now. But if I build an MVP version of an app for $15,000, in the grand scheme of things, like, that's not terribly interesting to me. But if you raise a round of funding and you need help kind of building out the phase two, and then we end up doing you know, a couple of years of kind of ongoing consulting work, like they can easily be a six figure engagement and that's not uncommon. Uh, so, I mean, I have a client now who I started at the beginning of October and that engagement was only supposed to last about six weeks until they onboarded a new developer that was going to be full time and they onboarded the developer, but it turns out like they wanted to move faster than they, than they thought. And so that engagement is still ongoing. And so the kind of initial dollar value of that is about a third of what it's turned out to be. And who knows where it'll go from here. So that's not atypical at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, super how, interesting. If you work with startups, how often do they try to convince you to take equity for payment? And how often have you done that? Yeah, so the answer is uh, zero and zero. And the reason that oh. the answer is that they never try to convince me is that I, I literally never get on a phone call with somebody without vetting them first. And one of the things I vet for is I don't do equity ever. And the reason is that, and this is what I always tell clients, um, it's not that I don't believe in your idea. It's not that, you know, it's not that it has nothing to do with the startup. It's just that I am not an investor at this point in my life. Like I'm not a startup investor. That's a completely different skill set. And I don't really want the cognitive overhead of trying to determine like whether or not I want to invest money in a particular startup. So I just don't do it as a blanket rule, like literally 0% of the time. And so it's easier to, yeah, I mean, that doesn't come up unless somebody lies to me and gets me on the phone under false pretenses. So, Okay, which, by the way, I 100% agree with you on, on, on what you said. And I also, I think once I knocked my rates down a tiny bit to get a tiny bit of equity, but that was it. And it never went anywhere. Thus proving that I should never do this in any way, shape, or form. But you said that you have a vetting process. So can you describe that? Because I think many people might be surprised to hear, like, why don't you want everyone in the world to be knocking on your door? And how do you make it so that people still do, even though you're pushing some others away? Yeah, so, I mean, this is one of the, you know, to go back to your earlier question about kind of what got me over the hump. If I had to pick one thing that 
you know, for the vast majority of freelancers that they should do differently. It's really hustle for work a lot more than they are. Most freelancers love their craft and they don't love the business side of freelance as much, which in my view is primarily sales. Like we like to be really successful at freelance, like you need to be great at the same things that make somebody great at sales, which is building relationships and closing deals. And I say all that because whenever I talk to a potential client, like my assumption is like, I'm not going to get this job. This is not going to be a good fit. And I'm okay with that because I have really good inbound lead flow. I hustle a lot, even now, even though I'm busy, especially because I'm busy. And I think a lot of freelancers, like they don't want to lose a particular sale. And, you know, a big part of that is if you don't have a lot of leads, then you probably can't afford to lose one. So I don't want all of the people who come to me. I really just want the ones that are a great fit for me, that are high margin, that are like where I feel like I can add real value to what they're doing, like to the approach that they're going after. And that are ideally that are a really good fit kind of relationship wise in terms of it being something that can be a long-term relationship if the company is around. So, um, I mean, I have a project minimum as a way to read out a lot of people. And my, I basically have kind of a, a fuzzy project minimum that's a little bit higher if I feel like this is just a one-off thing for whatever reason, just because I'm not going to get a lot of value out of this in the long run. And so I'll do it, but it would have to be a little bit higher budget for me to, to do that. So when you say that you're, you're always hustling, so what does that entail? Like, what do you do? Sure. So, I mean, in the early days, like, so I wrote like a 10,000 word guide to this that I haven't published yet. But for the first like five years, I got 90% of the work that I got off of Craigslist, which I think a lot of higher end freelancers would find really surprising. And I mean, I have done other than the first three years, maybe of my freelancing, like I've always done well into six figures of revenue. So these are good jobs. Like in 2014, I got a client who I did a six figure engagement with off of Craigslist. So essentially, I mean, I started the let's make apps.io thing that I mentioned because it's basically just a reflection of what my process was for many years, which was responding to a ton of freelance job posts, not on Odesk or Elance or any of those. I never did any of that, but really just trying to find people who were looking, who were already looking for what I was doing and building relationships with them. So for a long time, like that was my process. At this point, I get a lot of inbound lead flow. I get a lot of referrals. I get a lot of repeat business. And that makes up probably half of the of the quality leads that I get at this point, maybe more. But yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the thought leadership approach to freelancing, which is, you know, you pick a niche and you write and speak within that niche to your your target audience and you build up relationships over time and that brings you good consulting engagements. But the re and that's Honestly, that's a good fit for me, and I should have done that years ago. I know a lot of freelancers who that's just not a great fit for. Like, they don't like to write. They don't like to speak. That's just not the kind of thing that they're looking for. And I think I have, in my own career and in the career of others, like, I've seen a lot of people who have built really healthy businesses off of nothing more than having a skill set that's in demand and just responding to people who are looking for it. Can you kind of flesh out the, the Craigslist thing? That's, that's super fascinating because... I think in my mind, I've got Craigslist pegged as interesting, but sort of like a sewer, right? It is. <laughs> like a very, that's, that's exactly <laughs> accurate. It's, it's exactly like a sewer. So, so yeah, how do, how do you pull out the good stuff? So Craigslist is um, basically a sewer, um, but Craigslist has one thing that the vast majority of sites on the web do not have going for them, which is volume. So there's like 500 plus individual Craigslist 
regional sites or local sites, essentially, that get stuff posted to them. And so every day, there's like tens of thousands of people posting all over the country looking for all kinds of stuff, um, from software engineers to designers to writers and so forth. And I think the, you know, where people go wrong is they look at this stuff and it's like the signal to noise ratio is horrible. There's tons of spam. There's tons of like people who are looking for somebody to build their website for a hundred dollars and that kind of stuff. And if you don't have some kind of process to filter all that out, you can waste a lot of time going through it. So, I mean, my manual process essentially looked like me pulling RSS feeds from all, you know, 500 plus sites into a reader and doing a bunch of, um, you know, setting up existing, like pre-existing searches on those uh, feeds to filter out just the stuff that was a good fit for me. And then kind of having a daily batching process that took 20 or 30 minutes of going through, finding all the stuff that was a good fit, firing off emails, and then, you know, handling the responses. The 80% of that work is covered by Let's Make Apps. And we pull stuff from all over, not just Craigslist now, but we pull from Twitter and from AngelList and, you know, from a bunch of design job boards and we work remotely and some others. So but it's the same kind of process. It's basically, you know, whatever process you're using, whether you're using Let's Make Apps or something that's more homegrown, where you basically want to pull in as much as you can, filter out, you know, 98% of it, go through the last 2% and try and find the 0.01% that is a good leads. But that can still be, you know, 10 to 30 people a day who are looking for somebody who is, you know, I mean, for me as a developer who were looking for my web development skills whenever I was doing that or for mobile development stuff. And yeah, I just got to the point where it wasn't, wasn't terribly time consuming and it's just a funnel, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I would send out, I probably got responses for under 10% of the emails I sent out, but I, you know, I sent out, I got really good at sending emails out very quickly and I mean, again, like I wasn't spamming. I was only sending to like things that were relevant, but for various reasons, like you just don't hear back from most of those. And then once you get somebody on the phone, like I typically could close 30 to 50% of those. And of those, you know, 20% would become good long-term clients. And it, it worked out for a long time and it kind of bootstrapped, you know, my network and my portfolio and, and all these other things to the point where I, I mean, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, I could, and I don't think that I, beyond it necessarily. Cause I think there's still, like I said, I mean, I got something in 2014 that was, you know, into six figures. I wish I could say that that's nothing to me, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not, I'm not quite there yet. So, but it's more just that I, I mean, I'm, I'm busy these days. I'm as busy with consulting work at the moment as I want to be. So I, I, th- I think your point about, first of all, the very interesting to hear about this process with Craigslist but my guess is that what you said at the end here, which is you got really good at sending emails quickly, that was in many ways the most important part. Because if you know that you have to reach out to 100 people to get 10 potential leads, then you better be writing your email real fast and not doing what I often would do, which is sit and think about them and be very specific. And if it becomes half an hour per email, then the ROI is really, really low. But if yeah, it's you know, a I'm minute in- per email, then you're doing great. Exactly. I mean, even, so I use text expander, I mean, to this day, but I always used it for this and I don't know how familiar you guys are, but so I would use text expander and I would have 10 or 20 different variations just depending on what I was responding to. And that would have just like, you know, slightly differences. And then I'd also have a fill in 
at the beginning. So I would type in, you know, whatever my shortcut is, and it would pop up a window where I could type in something that was specific for that project. Um, so I'd usually open my emails by saying something that was very specific to that project. Like, hey, you know, I saw your, your ad looking for somebody who has experience with the Bluetooth SDK on iOS, and I just built this app. And, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with that. And then the rest of the email would be canned. It would be, you know, just kind of general information about me and a couple links for them to check out and then um, a specific uh, follow-up for them. And also, this was also really important. It would also have money, uh, you know, some kind of financial qualifier in there. Uh, because I got very low response rates, but I wanted low response rates. I did not want to have to get on the phone and go back and forth over email with people who were never going to pay my rates. So I would always put something about my rate or my minimum project size or something in every email that I sent out. And how do you say that without coming off as like crazy, arrogant, spamming, something like <laughs> yeah. that? No, that's a good question. I, I mean, I still, I still feel like... You know, in certain situations where, especially like if I get referred to somebody, definitely feels like, oh, just so you know, like I'm a big shot. But <laughs> for me, the minimum project um, size is a good way to qualify people before you know anything about their project. And I, it took me a long time to actually have a minimum project size because I think I felt like, well, you know, like if I get this job for $1,000 and it only takes me two hours, like that's $500 an hour. But that's just not how my mind works. There's a lot of cognitive overhead with having a client. And so even if it only really truly only does take you two hours it's still just like a, something that weighs on my mind in a way that is not beneficial and it's clouding out you know, there's an opportunity cost for that so it's clouding out the space for me to get a you know a twenty thousand dollar job so i have a minimum project size and that's a good way for me to kind of filter some of those people out and i find that that's maybe a little bit less you know that maybe comes across a little bit better so i i mean my specific wording now i think is something like you know just so you know like i have a minimum project size of x and most of my engagements are in the X to X range. And X to X is, um, you know, typically like two to five times whatever my minimum project size is. Some of that's just anchoring. Like I'm just trying to help them realize like I don't charge small amounts typically. Um, and so if they're looking for somebody to kind of just do a smaller job or take care of something really quickly, like that's probably just not a good fit for me. I also had success doing kind of the number of figures. So I'd say like typically, you know, for me to build a mobile app, like the minimum is we can probably talk and maybe come to some kind of an agreement. But if your budget is 10% of what my minimum is, I just, I don't want to waste your time as a client. What other sort of filtering criteria did you have when you're trying to reduce those hundreds or thousands of uh, like Craigslist possibilities down to the really, you know, the better ones? Yeah. So, I mean, the rest of them, in terms of my emails that went out, most of it was just the filtering was primarily financial. Right. The ones that I responded to, the filtering was kind of a mix of, I don't know, I mean, this is a lot more art than science, but it's basically, does this ad look like it was posted by somebody that I would want to work with? Mm -hmm. And that's, it's very, it's more art than science because like it really is like judging a book by the cover. And, you know, I've worked with some great clients who like couldn't be po bothered to post more than like a sentence or two about their project on Craigslist. Hmm. And on the other hand, like I've seen like some amazing ads that have been posted by people who turned out to be terrible clients. So I think that part is pretty murky. And I always kind of erred on the side of like, I'm going to send the email because sending an email for me was really cheap in terms yeah. of time. I'm going to send the email. If this person is looking for somebody who does what I do, 
and they can pay what I charge, then we can have a conversation. And that conversation will kind of determine like where we go from here. And so I have kind of another set of murky, <laughs> soft criteria that I use mm-hmm. once once I've opened a conversation with somebody. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It sounds like if you could package up some of these things you've been saying, you would say, start out by looking at a lot of a lot of stuff and and then you'll kind of develop this filter that lets you make a almost a snap judgment but like a good snap judgment right yeah i i'm definitely a, a fan of of realizing that it takes a little bit of time to develop like your own particular like filters and heuristics and and i try to i try to share the stuff that has been helpful for me but everybody's different and mm-hmm. what i find a good client like some other people might think is terrible and vice versa. So I I think some of this is a little bit less universal. And I do try and the people that I, the freelancers that I work with or that I write for, like I do try and emphasize that, you know, it may take you a while to figure some of this out and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and give you some shortcuts, but at the same time, you know, like if you are a designer who does, I don't know, banner ad design or something, uh, you know, and you primarily want to work with clients that you can work with locally. So you can like sit down with them and kind of work one-on-one. What you're looking for might be totally different from what I'm looking for and what you consider to be like a great client and like good process. I think there'll be a lot of overlap. I mean, nobody likes a client who treats them poorly or who pays really poorly or whatever, but um, I think everybody has kind of different preferences and, you know, that just takes time. So, yeah. It's a lot of chemistry yep. often, personal and but whether it was personality and in terms of the, the work style. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Something else interesting that you touched on was this idea of cognitive load. And that I was interested to hear that that can come from like small piddly clients. <laughs> and I mean, where else do you see that coming from and where else have you been able to sort of minimize the cognitive load so you can focus more on what you want to? Well, I mean, like I would assume probably you guys and a lot of other people kind of in this world, I keep a tight rein on my on my mind in terms of like distractions and um, trying to be like thoughtful and intentional about the way that I work. So I hit inbox zero every day. I try to only check my email a few times a day, which is probably the hardest thing out of all the stuff that I do. You know, whenever I'm working, like I'm really just trying to do like that one thing. I use Pomodoros, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but um, where I work in like a short sprint. So I'll set a timer for 25 minutes or 50, for 50 minutes, um, depending on basically on my mood and just do a sprint on whatever it is I'm supposed to be making progress on. And um, all of these things are a way for me to to reduce cognitive load, essentially, um, to not have things distracting me and pinging at me and, and so forth. But for me, if I have an open loop with a client where I'm waiting on them for something or, you know, I sent something off, but they need to check it and get back to me or pay me or whatever it is, there's some open loop like that. You know, I, that's not the end of the world, but there's a cost associated with that. So, you know, I always think about like, what would it be like if I had a hundred of these? And if I had a hundred like tiny little projects, like that would drive me nuts. And so even though the hourly rate is, is fine. There's just a certain amount of mental anguish that each project causes me because I, mm. you know, because I'm responsible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fixed overhead. <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious with your weekly, uh, with your weekly billing, how often do you communicate with clients? So project billing is interesting um, in the sense that it, I mean, depending on how you do it and we can get dig into this, but I think it can be really um, opaque 
in a helpful way, which I'm, I'm fine explaining it, but it's just, it's always been very interesting to me that clients don't ask like how I came up with a particular number. Weekly billing, on the other hand, or any kind of time-based billing definitely has a little bit more of uh, like, this is like, this is how you got this number. Although I don't think that's necessarily a fair way to look at it. But I would say that one of the things for weekly billing is that you should, should raise your rates every time you, every time you do a, a project, you should raise, raise your rates and keep raising them until you can't find anybody to hire you. And you can do that with project too, but I mean, depending on how you calculate your project rates like that, again, can be just something that's internal. But I've been pretty aggressive about waking, raising my weekly rates over time. And that has served me really well. I don't like to do weekly billing, honestly. Like I only do it because there are certain types of engagements where there's just not a good way to scope out what we're going to do with aside from that because I'm helping you know a startup build something that doesn't exist. There's a lot of open questions that we can't kind of dive in and tackle right away. So it just doesn't make sense to do anything else. And that's that's why I do weekly billing. Um, otherwise, I, I always prefer to do a project quote if I can. How do you do that? I mean, I've always been sort of in awe of people who can give a fixed price quote for something potentially quite large. So, I mean, the reality is that if you are giving fixed price quotes, you should be adding a pretty significant amount of margin to that because you're taking on a lot of risk. If you're going to charge weekly and give an estimate, then the client takes on the risk of you, you know, it taking a lot longer than expected. So, I mean, part of the answer is that you basically charge a lot more than you would if you were getting paid for your time because in some cases it's going to take longer than you expect. So that's that's one part of it. <laughs> I really do think that a big part of being successful with project billing, no matter what your method is, is finding the right clients. And I am pretty explicit with clients from day one that we're like we're building something that doesn't exist. And you know, in my case, particularly with startups, there's always going to be like unforeseen bumps along the road. And so I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for people who like we're going to attack each kind of unforeseen bump together and figure out like what's a reasonable way to go through this. Because I have definitely worked on fixed bid projects where, you know, something came up that was unexpected and well, that's what the scope of work says. And so that's what we're going to do. And that's horrible to work with. And it's it's very short-sighted on their part too. But it's just, it's that's where you really get yourself in trouble, I think, with fixed bid stuff. And so I'm looking for clients who are going to be reasonable. You know, I'm, I'm working on a project now where this has definitely been an issue. Like there are a couple things that, you know, like they had wireframes of the app um, whenever we started. And, you know, I went through and I did my best, my best effort to come up with, you know, what a good quote was. And it was suitable to our, all parties and we dove in. But they had, you know, they'd forgotten a few things. And there were a few things that I essentially missed because it's hard to tell sometimes how long something's going to take whenever it's just some wireframes. Until you start in, dive in and start doing certain things, it can be difficult to tell in advance like how long it's going to take. But this client, because I am always like at the beginning, I'm always trying to figure out like, are they going to be reasonable? Are they going to be pleasant to work with? And they are. And so we've worked it out. Like some of the things that they forgot to put in, I've added. It's not a big deal. They're small things. There's not a huge cost. I'm not going to like send them a new, a new quote for every tiny little item. And on the flip side, they have been reasonable whenever I've said, you know, look, like this approach is going to be more difficult than I originally anticipated. You know, here are some alternatives that I think would be a better fit. And that's fine with them. So that doesn't work if you are 
basically like, you know, you have your lawyers meet in a room before you start the project and hammer out like every tiny detail and you're going to sue each other if anything goes wrong. Like that's, and that's just not the relationship that I want with my clients anyway. So I really, really think that the biggest thing you can do if you want to charge flat rates is pick the right clients. Like look for people who are, who understand that this, you know, there's a lot of unknowns whenever it comes to, I mean, I do software development, so this may be slightly less true for other types of freelance, but in software development, there's a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of things that are, are difficult to predict in advance. And so I want somebody who, who understands that we are basically like we, we have, we share goals. Like we're trying to launch this app. That's going to do this thing. And we're going to work together to figure out like what the best way to do that is within the constraints that we have of time and budget and so forth. It sounds to me in some ways like you're, you're putting, first of all, I, I love the idea of you know, pick good clients, but you're sort of echoing what so many other people say, which is it all comes down to trust and communication. And if you and your clients communicate well and you trust each other, then you're not going to screw each other over just because, you know, a, a one line change was not mentioned in the original spec. You're, you're right. working together. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. And I do try to, I mean, you know, it's always like, it's always a balancing act because I don't want to set the wrong tone with a client and, you know, make them think that my time is not valuable. And so anything they ask for, like they're going to get at the same time, like if, if the client wants some minor changes, even if it differs from our original scope, I'm typically happy to do that. Um, and part of it is like, I work on, on pretty large high margin projects. Like I have margin in the project to be able to do those things. So, right. And that helps too. Philip, any uh, last questions for Ryan? Well, I think we've decided we're going to rename this show the Trust and Communication Show. (laughs) (laughs) That is because everybody who has reached any level of success with freelancing reiterates that over and over. Like that's that's the key. It's just awesome to hear that from you. And uh, I'm just still reeling from the fact that uh, there is anything good at all in Craigslist. <laughs> so I'm still still digesting that over here. Well, I'll send you the I'll send you the guide when I'm done with it. I can't uh, wait to see it. I, the thing is, I'm not surprised there's good stuff on Craigslist. What I'm impressed by, especially, is that you figure out a system that would really just not waste your time in going through it to find those gems because there must be. I mean, obviously, there are good companies posting there. They don't know any better. They figure, why not? And quite frankly, they had success in finding someone. Why not do it again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I've done – I mean, just to give you numbers, like I've done well over $500,000 directly from Craigslist and probably another quarter of a million indirectly from referrals and repeat business off of Craigslist. Amazing. Wow. So. That's impressive. I think that's a good note to wrap up on. <laughs> Absolutely. Philip, you got any picks for us this week? I'm going to pick something a little different. Um, I came across a pair of headphones recently that are kind of interesting. They're uh, made by Sony, uh, which is not a brand that I have a lot of respect for, but they made a pretty interesting pair of headphones. These are the MA900s, and you can find them on Craigslist. They're a little hard to find because they're not imported directly to the U.S., but what is interesting about these headphones is you don't need an amplifier for them to sound great, and they're kind of angled on your head. They're very comfortable, but they are sort of angled in a way that creates a very nice sound stage. So if you're into listening to music at your desk and want a uh, not terribly expensive pair of headphones that sounds pretty nice and is easy to drive without any kind of dedicated equipment, this uh, might be worth a look. The uh, Sony M- MDR MA900s. I'll drop a link in the show notes for those. Uh, that's it for my pick for this week. 
Excellent. Ryan, you got any picks for us? Yeah, so um not sure how much time we have. I, I have three, but I can give you Go for it. One Go or two or all three. Okay. So the first one is one of that I mentioned earlier. Um, I don't know if anybody else on the show has mentioned it, but um, the book Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. Alan is a, an old school consultant, I would say. Like he's been consulting since the 80s, but he built a solo seven-figure consultancy. And he does like strategy consulting, not you know technical consulting like I do. But I think just in terms of the way that you relate to your clients and the way that you think about your business like his the lessons from that book and and a lot of his other books he wrote um, a popular one on value-based pricing and and some others um, but those lessons are all timeless so i highly recommend the book my next pick is solo retreats so i don't know if you guys do this but um, i try to do this every quarter i often only get like twice a year but i try and get away by myself somewhere i can unplug for at least a few days um, typically I need at least three days to kind of like for the ringing in my ears to stop, but just to think about my business and to think about life and think about like where I want to go over the next quarter or year or whatever it is. Um, so I, I often do like a cabin in the woods and I've done some other like more <laughs> unconventional solo retreats, but yeah, definitely just unplugging is probably the most important thing there. Like you can't take your phone and your laptop and surf around on the internet the whole time or you won't ever get to the point where you're kind of like feeling about some new stuff like you know thinking about some some new things and then the last one is something that i have found really helpful as kind of coming out of retreats like that which is this little uh, package of notebooks called pick four have you guys heard of this no uh-uh. okay so zig ziglar is this like very old school motivational speaker who passed away a few years ago and seth godin um, like always cites Zig as like one of his biggest influences in kind of like helping him get over some early career failures and, and so forth. So Zig had this like motivational goal planner type thing, like back in the probably sixties and seventies and Seth republished it as this set of notebooks called pick four. And it basically walks you through picking four goals to focus on every day for 12 weeks and like every day in the notebook, you write down like what you did towards each of those four goals and whether or not that was enough for the day and just helps you narrow your focus and be accountable for a short period of t- a relatively short period of time. Like I don't really do annual goals anymore because it's just too long. So in January, I'm thinking, ah, I've got plenty of time. <laughs> and in October, I'm thinking, ah, it's already like almost the end of the year. I guess I'll just start next year. So for me, like, doing specific goals on a quarter by quarter basis has been really helpful. And the, the pick four notebooks, which you can just get on Amazon have just been a helpful way for me to kind of like frame my thinking around that. Nice. Uh, so I've got one pick this week. Uh, I think I've mentioned on the show in the past, uh, slate magazine has this uh, podcast called working where they interview people in all sorts of jobs, just find out what they do all day. And in general, I recommend it. I think it's interesting. They've had a few different hosts over the years. And I just heard one earlier today, the How Does a Professional Pie Baker Work edition. And mm-hmm. I think it, it was it had a lot of useful lessons in there. I mean, besides the fact that pie is just really good. But it had a lot of really useful lessons in there for running a business. So this woman, uh, Teeny something, what her last name is, she decided that she wanted to be a pie baker. And so, but she realized that it wasn't enough to learn how to be a baker. You need to learn how to run a pie business. So she spent a year, instead of paying to go to conditory school, baking school, pastry chef school, 
she um, wrote to a bunch of different bakers whom she liked and respected, said, hey, can I come work for you for free for a month, an intern, an apprentice, and learn how you run your business, both from the baking side and from the business side? And so she did this for a year and learned a ton and now has her own successful business. And it was fascinating to hear that and also the way that she structures her week so that she can get it all out. And briefly, basically, if she sells everything on Friday and Saturday, she does all the crust on Sunday and Monday, or I guess Monday and Tuesday, and then does the fillings on Wednesday so that she can make the pies on Thursday and Friday. And it never occurred to me that to run a bakery, you really need to be so organized and have a system. But it's just like all of us with our businesses, the more we systematize and the more we plan in advance, the better it is. So anyway, I, I thought it was a really fascinating, fun interview, full of interesting stories, and of course, lots of good mentions of pie. Uh, so I'll put the <laughs> <laughs> so I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And yeah, uh, that's a great, it's a great podcast. I love that podcast actually. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend the Bail Bondsman edition. Yeah, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. I yeah. totally that's agree. probably my favorite episode of the, <laughs> of the working podcast. That's right. That's right. Oh, I totally forgot about that one. Well, Ryan, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast this week. We enjoyed speaking to you and learned a lot from you. And we will see you next week on The Freelancer Show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.